Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I'm joined by Mika Honkansalo and Larry Cermak from the incredible research team at The Block. We give you guys the ultimate Uniswap V3 download, exploring the early days of Uniswap V3 activity. We unstack how the V3 model changes the game for passive or quote unquote lazy liquidity providers now that the new AMM design employs an active management approach to liquidity provision. We discuss the implications of V3's concentrated liquidity model and how that drives greater capital efficiency versus V2 and explore the advantages and disadvantages of non-fungible liquidity, which seems to be breeding a whole new class of tools like NFT smart vaults. We explore what semi-passive liquidity management will look like as a result of the smart vaults built for tokenized LP strategies. Of course, we chat about what the current liquidity distribution looks like across the blue chip DeFi and long tail assets on V3 compared to V2. You'll definitely want to hear their views on whether V3 poses a real credible threat to Curve. I also really enjoyed hearing them talk about the battle between AMMs as more deploy onto layer twos such as Polygon and Arbitrum. There's a lot at stake for V3's deployment onto Optimism. Well, I'm gonna stop here before I get too deep into the weeds. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mika and Larry. I learned a ton and I know you will as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today we have Larry Cermak and Mika Honkonsalo from the research team at The Block. Their latest research article called An Early Look at Uniswap V3 Activity is hot off the press today. Guys, I'm so excited to have you on Crypto Unstacked to discuss what's going on with Uniswap V3. Welcome to the show. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. We just saw Uniswap V3 launch on Mainnet earlier this month on May 5th, and we're going to be expecting more developments down the line uh, V3 being deployed on layer two. I would love for us to talk about automated market making, that model, and how it relates to the traditional CLAW model, also known as you know central limit order books, and set the stage for our audience today, some who might not be familiar with this model. AMMs, you know, they rose as a way to easily bootstrap liquidity for long tail assets. And Uniswap, as you wrote, Mika, became one of the most popular DeFi applications to facilitate this activity on Ethereum by making it super easy to create new markets. And Uniswap basically did for market making what most DeFi applications aim to do for financial services, right? Which is abstracting away the complexities around things like trading, asset management, and borrow lending. So for those tuning in who have traded on centralized exchanges before, but may not be familiar with the AMM model on decentralized exchanges, what are some differences between AMMs and their CLOB counterparts? I think the best way to think about it is that the traditional AMM model, the Uniswap started, and then the central limit order book model are sort of the polar opposites or complete inverses of each other. So an AMM is a, really a passive market making strategy where the market maker, there are some exceptions to this, but in a general sense, is willing to provide liquidity at an infinite range. And then just trading happens sort of within that price range. And you have this pool where you deposit asset two assets into, you can think of them as like two jars. And, and maybe there's a, like a jar of Ethereum and a, char, uh, a jar of USDC or something. And trading means that you take some of the ETH out of the jar and put some USDC in or vice versa. And you're doing this at like an infinite range, uh, whereas a limit, a limit order book is like the complete opposite of that. So it's something where at a specific price point, you're providing liquidity and it executes or doesn't execute on that specific price. So they're like the polar opposites of each other. And Uniswap V3 is just basically the way to think about it is that it opens up the entire range between these two. So it is both this passive market making strategy and it can be used to approximate a limit order book if you want to, but also it can be used to build every single strategy in between these two extremes as well. Right. 
Yeah, so Uniswap combines aspects of both models. Larry, are there certain advantages to the MM model? And that's why we've seen that take off over the past you know, year and a half to two years. Really, the, the main advantage is that you have on-demand liquidity um, at all times, and, and it doesn't require active management. So what it allowed people to do is like, you know, uh, kind of unsophisticated people like, like me, for example, can just throw in some money uh, and then provide that liquidity in a very simple way. So that, in my opinion, that's the best advantage. And that's why um, a lot of this trading was bootstrapped. It's because it's just simple to provide liquidity. And, and normally when we're thinking about, you know, traditional market makers on exchanges and even now for V3, uh, there's there's a certain aspect that, you know, you just need more sophistication and then you need to more actively participate. It's much more difficult um, and it's not as easy as to as to earn yield. And then another advantage is obviously that the LP tokens that you have from LPing, they're fungible. So you can use them for other things. You can use them as collateral for some lending protocols. There are a few other things. I, I know I know Sam from FTX was thinking about allowing to use these fungible LP tokens as well as collateral for trading on FTX. So I think those are the two biggest advantages, while really the biggest disadvantage is that it's just not capital efficient. Um, and, and it requires a lot of liquidity for a relatively small amount of trading volume. And it's also worth pointing out that this by itself, the Uniswap LPing or LPing in similar AMMs is one of the, in some sense, one of the killer applications in DeFi so far, because there's like 100,000 addresses that have done Uniswap LPing. So this is sort of comparable to the user numbers on, uh, total user numbers on Compound or OneInch or some of the most popular DeFi applications. So Uniswap LPing, not even the trading part by itself is like one of the most popular applications right now in the whole DeFi space. And, and when you look at like, you know, centralized market makers, there's actually not that many. Uh, and especially when you look at the most successful ones, even just do, just market making on, on centralized exchanges, there's maybe like 10 to 15 of the really large ones that are competitive. And then the rest kind of gets, gets priced out because it's, it's just really, really difficult to compete against these really, you know, active strategies. Yeah, so we've basically seen this evolution, right? From market making being made very, very easy via automated market makers, unlocking lazy liquidity, passive capital, and kind of departing from the throw your money in and forget about it type of LPing to active LPing with V3. And this, as you write, Mika, really introduces a lot of competition, right, between LPs. So let's talk about what liquidity providers care about in the first place? For liquidity providers, actually, it may not even, in the case of a DEX, it may not even be a matter of ultimately caring what the liquidity providers in this very large global sense that anyone can be a liquidity provider wants, because ultimately what a DEX has to do is it has to minimize price slippage on trades. And uh, to do that, active LPing is very useful uh, because it concentrates liquidity around the current market price and traders get better execution. And because of that, in some sense, if you want to go the route to an efficient exchange, uh, you can think that Uniswap didn't have really a choice in some sense, uh, except to go towards this type of active LPing. And that uh, really breaks down a lot of what uh, the advantages that people are getting from passive LPing. Larry mentioned like these features about using the LP tokens, for example, as collateral, and that is more difficult in a situation where the LP positions are different, so they're uh, not fungible with each other. They're unique and different positions, so you can't really use them at least as easily uh, in different protocols to do different functions. I think it may be a situation where DEX doesn't have really a choice except to sort of serve the traders at the expense of uh, LPs in this case. Do you think there is room for passive LP strategies in V3, which dominated V2, but as we say, this might be the game for active LPs, right? I think this is a thing that no one really knows the answer to and how well uh, there's this range now between uh, a completely passive strategy and then all these automated strategies in between where you sort of rebalance based on you only have these models can only have a few different inputs. They're like the price volatility between the different assets and the price history and sort of trend line of these different assets that these uh, passive uh, semi-passive strategies in between uh, limit orders and, and the completely passive one can take. And there, we don't really know how well they will perform ultimately. 
there is probably a, a reasonable hypothesis that you can build some semi-passive strategies that work quite well and are able to earn fees because it's also good to note that the LP tokens, they're only valuable because they generate fees. If they don't generate fees, they're sort of a negative asset uh, actually to the holder compared to just holding the two assets in the pool. So they have to generate fees and to generate fees, they have to generate trading volume and that's where you need the capital efficiency. And we may ultimately reach a point where okay, none of these really like passive strategies actually work that well. But if Uniswap is successful and that's true, that also means that the active strategies are so good that traders are getting really good execution. Uh, but I think it is quite reasonable to expect that some uh, semi-passive strategies will work to an extent. Uh, the extent to which they will work is sort of unknowable. I don't think even the Uniswap team would really know the answer to that is something that the market has to now build and sort of play out. And I think we're also going to get a better answer to that when V3 deploys to uh, Optimism and, and, you know, you get also the advantage of being able to do these strategies more cheaply. Like right now, it's relatively expensive as well. So I think like we're going to get a full data set, I think about maybe like one or two months where we're probably going to be able to make some of these conclusions. But at this point, it's kind of still unclear. Yeah, you guys touched on a lot of different features in V3. So let's shift into that and talk about some of the changes in the AMM design in V3, which are aimed to boost flexibility and efficiency, right? Making LPing much more customizable. And as you mentioned earlier, right, Mika, combining the best of AMMs and order book exchanges. And so one of these features is concentrated liquidity. Based on the website on Uniswap, they say this means giving individual LPs granular control over what price ranges their capital is allocated to. And individual positions are aggregated together into a single pool, forming one combined curve for users to trade against. What does liquidity distribution look like in V3 under this concentrated liquidity model across the different trading pairs that we see in V3 today? Right now, the custom liquidity ranges and and in Uniswap, there really is, Uniswap V3, there really is only one sort of big feature. And then uh, there are many different applications of the feature. So the feature is custom liquidity ranges where you can place your liquidity, say, instead of the infinite range, for example, for the Ethereum price right now, you might set your liquidity at a range between 3,000 and 400, at uh, 3,000 and 4,000 uh, USDC. And what that does is that you can approximate these different curves where the liquidity, if you imagine it as a distribution, you can pack a lot of the liquidity to the middle or you can extend it out sort of to the far tail. And a normal AMM, a Uniswap V2 or a SushiSwap, the, the distribution is like sort of much more what you'd imagine like a normal distribution to look like where uh, the liquidity is across this infinite range, very broadly distributed. Whereas in Uniswap V3, you're starting to see these asset-specific liquidity concentrations essentially form. So if you have a market like a DAI to USDC or USDC to USDT, so markets between two different stable coins, you have all the liquidity basically within like a two cent range or something so that the price is never expected to go out of that. So that means that liquidity providers can always provide that liquidity right there. Then you have the more I guess in crypto, nothing is never unvolatile, but the less volatile assets like Ethereum or BTC, like the bigger assets, then you have right now that it looks like there's maybe 60% of the liquidity concentrated around the 15% of the price range right now. And that looks a lot more packed than like the infinite distribution. And then you also have like these long tail assets where um, liquidity first hasn't really formed, but where it has the distribution looks much more like the uh, Uniswap V2 one where it's a, a wider range as well. So you can take uh, more advantage of just packing liquidity in a specific price range if you're more confident that the price will be uh, within that price range. You mentioned stablecoin to stablecoin pairs being able to provide really tight liquidity range because of this custom range model in V3. How much of a threat does V3 pose to Curve? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think so far, 
you know, probably not that much. Like Curve has been able to defend the liquidity they have. They still uh, they still give better pricing, as far as I know. I was checking this morning. Uh, long term, though, it is an interesting question. I think long term uh, it probably does pose uh, a threat to, to Curve, and I think the Uniswap team believes that they do, uh, since they keep focusing on that. And ever since they released um, that, you know, one of the key points that they're focusing on is stablecoin swaps as well. Uh, that was one of the weakest things in in Uniswap V2 is is that you just couldn't do it in an efficient way, and and now it's uh, the prices are just much more competitive at this point already, even without much liquidity. However, you know, like Curve can relatively easily respond, uh, in my opinion, like you know that they could create something that's like relatively similar. They also have the token, and and they can use they can use it more aggressively for incentives as well. So they have a lot of ways to defend against that, and they also already have a lot of people like invested in the ecosystem. So I think I, I'm not expecting Curve to just go away just because Uniswap now releases a product that's like somewhat competitive. Uh, but I mean, that, that's another thing that I think we're just going to have to wait for a bit. Um, but but I don't anticipate that to be that that much of an issue. Uh, it, it could be in the next like, you know, two or three years or something. But I think in, in the super near term, um, it's probably not going to be a large effect. But I wonder what Mika thinks as well. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm kind of just, just my guess. Yeah, Curve has like these pretty heavy incentives right now to uh, provide liquidity on the platform. So liquidity providers aren't going anywhere from Curve. And if they're not going anywhere from Curve, it means that Curve also has very uh, efficient pricing. And maybe the stablecoin to stablecoin use case is one where even if Uniswap V3 is capital efficient uh, for the traders, uh, like Curve is already very good, right? So uh, because it can because like the AMM, they can make it so that it's very efficient for that tight range and nothing else. So the advantage you get from Uniswap V3 isn't that large um, comparatively because the slippage already is very small. Even if it is like a direct competitor in a way where it could take Curve's market share away, Curve doesn't need to lose because there's not just there's just not that far to go in the stablecoin to stablecoin swaps as the what Uniswap v3 probably can do better is that it starts to get like these blue chip DeFi uh, tokens where there are more more trading interest um, and like BTC and ETH are sort of the first examples that where there's the most interest and making those more efficient and that's where you get the relative advantage is actually much bigger sort of than in a curve. I think the reason to think that uh, Uniswap v3 can take curve on really is that that it's just a, such an obvious use case in a way where, okay, if we concentrate the liquidity around that, we'll be immediately very competitive on pricing against Curve. But I think that sort of takes out the a part of the equation, which is that the relative advantage still will never be that large, uh, no matter what, in that specific use case. Yeah, when it comes to the blue chip DeFi tokens, do you think that the volumes will pretty much just flip over? from V2 to V3 uh, within like the first month. Are we already seeing that for some of the tokens? The first indication of that is that the volume has flipped for these. There's like a few most popular pairs essentially that make up a majority of DEX volume uh, with like BTC and ETH uh, being the biggest ones or wrapped BTC uh, in the specific ERC20 case. And there the volume has flipped and the liquidity is already one where Okay, Uniswap V3 is obviously better because the cost of uh, the complexity and cost of market making is more in Uniswap V3. But these large trading pairs, there's also a big enough incentive for the big market makers to come in and fix that, even on the Ethereum chain. And this should become actually a lot more easier on Optimism, where you can uh, more often rebalance and actually react to the market in a reasonable way. Right now, you're still sort of taking a pretty big hit in some way because it's very difficult and costly to rebalance. So that at least takes a lot of capital to take those positions. If you look at the data right now, it's, and maybe this is like the key message of Uniswap V3, it's that it's all still a work in progress where you have to build more, build more infrastructure and people have to get used to building these strategies more to really know what the impact is. But the sort of next wave of tokens you would expect from the popularity range of four to 20. Um, they, these tokens, they're, in some cases, there's quite a bit of liquidity where it is competitive. Trading volumes, there's a chart in, my, in the research piece that we posted, which is like that maybe one third of the volume has flipped. And it could be that if you just uh, wind the clock two weeks further, it flips completely and all those trading pairs are on V3, which would be very good. 
But right now it's still like this. If you look at just the liquidity ranges, they don't even look like these beautiful distributions in some sense. They, there's so little liquidity that there are like these liquidity spikes in them that look odd, that really shouldn't be there. And and then, so it could be that we're just like a few weeks away from all those uh, pairs flipping, but right now it's still, it's sort of happening slowly and maybe pair by pair. And there's also all these new different situations that are sort of happening because for example in the current AMM model all the ETH denominated pairs are most popular. This is because there's a higher correlation between DeFi tokens and ETH than there is like DeFi tokens and stable coins. But in traditional like market making the most common pair on centralized exchanges are USD denominated ones which is you would expect to happen in an efficient uh, marketplace and and those are the types of things you're actually starting seeing on Uniswap where the ninth and 10th most popular pair right now are one inch to USDC and wrapped to BTC to USDC. And that doesn't really exist at all in the Uniswap V2 or SushiSwap world. So those are the types of differences you're starting to see in the market. And that's just happening as well. So we don't know really that, okay, now LPs are realizing that we want to jump to these USDC denominated markets instead of ETH ones. And all that's playing out in real time. So that's why it is a process and it will take a while. Yeah, I, I agree with Mika. And I think eventually it will happen where most of the volume will, will flip or at least the majority. Uh, what's also important to, to, to remember is like that Uniswap obviously is pushing relatively hard for, for people to migrate. So like if you look at like when you go to, to Uniswap right now, it automatically routes you through V3 unless you actually say that you want to switch to V2, even if it's a lower price, like it doesn't do it automatically for you. Um, so like a lot of the pairs I was checking this morning, like a good test for just, just to seeing like what prices uh, it gives you is, is just to try out like some swaps kind of on V2 and V3 and compare prices. And, um, I, I tried that a couple of weeks ago and then almost all of them were cheaper on V2. So it was, uh, you know, execution was much cheaper on V2 and then it was kind of favorable to users. Uh, when I checked this morning, it was kind of almost 50, 50, uh, and I checked for 1000, 10,000, 100,000 and 1 million, uh, swaps. So it's definitely getting there. And, and Mika saw that in his research as well. Um, and I think, you know, like it, it's kind of almost inevitable that it'll happen. Um, and, and because Uniswap is, is pushing V3 and, and kind of like pushing V2 in the background, like the question is whether some of the V2 liquidity could, could then flow into something like SushiSwap, which is still focusing like purely on, um, you know, just, just a simple AMM model, uh, at least for now. Um, so, so those are gonna be something that we're definitely gonna be watching soon. Uh, and then obviously also the switch to uh, the switch to L2s and Uniswap deploying on Optimism and SushiSwap likely on Arbitrum. So there's still going to be this like funny rivalry, uh, both of them on, on different L2s. So we'll see. But uh, it's definitely you know it's still relatively early to to say. But I would say a lot of the liquidity from V2 will migrate to V3, and and some of it will probably like a small part will probably go to SushiSwap because of incentives. And with V3, I think what we're seeing now is very interesting in that there's a niche forming around protocols offering concentrated liquidity as a service. I guess that's the best way to put it. And Mika, you wrote that, you know, there is a hope for an entire ecosystem of market-making models or market-making tools rather to form around Uniswap V3. Could we see specialty vaults for tokenized LP strategies? That is like a big industry that's sort of new and will be explored right now which is these hybrid strategies where you concentrate liquidity at some specific range for the asset pair, probably based on the volatility of the asset. And then you have rebalancing strategies within that. So, okay, if the price moves 3% within a day or something, we move our liquidity that way or the other way. And there are different ways of structuring that, but essentially a lot of those do come down to just looking at the uh, historic price and what they can do is they can react to that and sort of move their liquidity around uh, a bit like you can think of it as lagging behind what's currently happening in the markets. Uh, so what they can't do really is to understand event data. Uh, they can't know things from the real world in the same sense that like an active liquidity provider could and could react to quickly. They're always sort of lagging behind a little bit, but also they do pool a lot of capital around maybe there is an idea that you can standardize some good practices around how you how much liquidity you put around the current market price 
based on the historic volatility. And yeah, there's like at least four teams who are deployed or are deploying uh, right now this and probably a lot more. Uh, but ultimately, they are these strategies that still they have to just react slowly based on the market price. They can't be sort of really, really actively managed in a way where it won't be the most competitive strategy. But how competitive it is, uh, that's what ultimately determines the success. And if they are relatively competitive, then you actually are able to open up market making again to a big audience because it's as simple as depositing your assets into a urine style vault and that has some expected return on it. It has some expected uh, like probability of downside as well. Uh, but uh, that's also true of uh, a regular AMM uh, strategy as well. It's just a bit more heightened in this case because you're packing your liquidity more around the current market price. So the benefits and the hits are sort of bigger in both cases. Uh, but that's if that's uh, the best case scenario you can get to, and that can open up again that, okay, now you can have 100,000 market makers because the Uniswap V3 uh, right now has only 10,000 market makers, whereas Uniswap V2 still has 100,000 addresses providing liquidity right now. So there's like this huge difference between the two at the moment. And that difference can only be really bridged if there are good passive vaults uh, available for people to use. Yeah, I think that's correct. And like Mika said, I mean, it, it's just going to allow people to like somewhat passively um, participate in some of these relatively actively managed strategies. Uh, and I can easily see like some of these project projects also, you know, having a governance token and then then governance token uh, having some sort of a liquidity mining uh, aspect to it. So it's it's very possible that there's going to be liquidity that's driven by some of these incentives. And then I also expect that you know basically these these aggregators like Yearn uh, to to perform well because I think like some of these strategies will open up a lot of new liquidity mining um, kind of opportunities. Uh, they're going to be uh, they are going to be interesting for. Um, the, the more passive investors, and that's most of us. Um, uh, me, you know, Mika and I, normal people, they don't want to sit around and, and like work on these strategies. You would rather just, you know, let someone else do it who's much smarter than you and who can do it in a better way, and then just take a little bit of the profit that they make. Uh, and it's also like regular market makers on central exchanges work that way as well. They're like to a large extent they're all automated already. Uh, they don't just have people sitting there and, and like executing everything manually. Um, so I do expect that, that this is going to be this is going to grow. Uh, a relatively large ecosystem early on, and then they're going to, they're going to be a few winners, and it, and I think that's going to be another sub subsection of DeFi that um, is going to start making sense to participate in. Uh, this liquidity mining in particular could be a really big advantage actually for V3 over its competitors because, and this is one where SushiSwap and Curve are really known for their liquidity mining programs and incentivizing liquidity, and Uniswap really is not known for that and not like placing large amounts of capital to do that. But if you have these external service providers who are maybe running their own liquidity mining programs to bootstrap around their automated strategies, or even if Uniswap itself decides to do some incentives, for example, on L2, those incentives are actually a lot more effective in some sense than any other previously, because Uniswap requires less capital uh, in to execute good trades, right? So. That means that the liquidity mining incentives also sort of need to be smaller because they're more effective. Like the capital efficiency also flows from the market maker, market making to the liquidity mining programs themselves because less, less incentives can be used to pack the uh, liquidity around the current market price. And when you're able to do that with less capital, you're, you're able to incentivize uh, like low slippage and that's actually a benefit so it could be that we end up in a situation where actually these Uniswap V3 liquidity money programs are just a lot more efficient and better than any competitor as well. well one thing I would like to add and maybe it, uh, I'm going to ask a question to Mika now uh, but I'm kind of wondering that like you know now that a lot of these L2s and, and optimistic rollups are going to be coming online uh, you know Arbitrum I think end of next week and then Optimism at some point like two three weeks or something relatively soon is it possible that they're going to be some exchange decentralized exchanges try to simulate order book on these L2s um, in, in a more kind of natural way versus just doing it in, in this kind of like a you know hybrid uh, and is it possible that that ends up taking some volume and, and liquidity away from Uniswap. I, I don't think it, it will, but I'm kind of curious what Mika thinks. 
A good example of this is DYDX, for example, for perpetual swaps on ZK rollups, and they run a very traditional order book model. And really the advantage for AMMs has previously come from the fact that it's not feasible to run an order book on Ethereum. It's, if you th simply think of, okay, you have to store the orders on the Ethereum chain, the state size associated with just storing that history is like it's not feasible for the for Ethereum to do that. So AMMs are this really gas-efficient way to do trading. And um, you can think that order books are actually a really efficient way to structure a marketplace in the common sense, because it's just, okay, the best price always executes. So it could be that maybe there's no other way to build uh, exchanges ultimately except, or any other sort of marketplace uh, where you match buyers and sellers except an order book, and that, that is always the best way to do it. And that argument actually makes a lot of sense. And what Uniswap V3, I think, does is that it opens up the possibility for that, as well as all these passive strategies and the sort of most passive strategy in between. And it allows the market to play out this hypothesis and this competition fully. And it could be a situation where you end up that Uniswap V3 ultimately only looks like a limit order book, and you can't even recognize the difference from the trader perspective anymore because these active strategies dominate and because you have these orders that execute within uh, one of the features of the custom liquidity range is basically that if you put your liquidity at a very, very tight range, that's mathematically sort of similar to approximating a limit order or on an order book. And, and it could be that that is what plays out for V3, but that also means that V3 sort of makes the right design choice because it has to compete with these order books as well. And you'd expect that comp competition to really come uh, when you have just more transaction throughput. And that way you can sim uh, simulate the efficiency and the transaction speeds of a centralized exchange. And there's a reason why centralized exchanges and why marketplaces are structured in an order book manner. It is because that's efficient way to structure a market. So there really is like, yes, the competition may come but this really is actually a reaction to that, that, okay, if these more, uh, if, if we hit a situation where the next sushi swap is like the order book uh, sushi swap, then how do we compete against that? So this Uniswap V3 has to sort of build out, it has to be able to defend itself on all these different strategies as well. Yeah. And another new crop of these kind of smart vault strategies is called a NFT smart vault. Um, and, and this is something that I literally just learned about in this last day. One of the projects that caught my attention is called Visor Finance. They're an active liquidity management protocol, again, built on top of V3. Basically, what they do is allow user controlled contract vaults to hold assets, right? And for people to um, basically deploy the strategy by not relinquishing custody of their assets, what I think is pretty cool. And users can participate in all sorts of liquidity mining programs at the same time through various NFT smart vaults. What do you think about this? Is it kind of early for something like this to exist when kind of V3 is just proving itself? What is this going to end up looking like? The NFT part of the NFT smart vault refers to the fact that uh, all the liquidity positions are unique or they can be unique in the sense that you can always pick what custom liquidity range you make, and that may be different from every single other person in the market, and that would make it uh, like the rarest sort of one-of-one one NFT in, in some sense. And then uh, all, but all the positions are NFTs because uh, they they uh, provide you create an NFT basically where you have this custom liquidity range, and that uh, the NFT ID is sort of uh, tied to that. The active management part is interesting where you could actually have a situation where instead of having a passive strategy, you just allocate your capital to a market maker. If that market maker feels that they can get an advantage by getting user capital and then they have some revenue split basically between the active manager and those who are providing capital, that does have some risk because the active manager has to do a good job and it may be that negotiation position is also complex where how much revenue goes to which one, who is doing like the work, and is it better to just do a passive strategy or a semi-passive automated strategy where you get all the benefits, or do you sort of take a hit where you also have to pay this active manager and then 
maybe you get some advantages from that, but do you get enough compared to the uh, sort of uh, fully uh, passive model or, or algorithmic model entirely? And actually, does the market maker also benefit enough? So I think that's also a question. I'm actually skeptical if that type of thing works uh, because of that revenue split and the negotiation that's complex and where everyone sort of uh, takes money from each other in some sense uh, from those positions. So I'm skeptical if that actually works, but it is one avenue to explore as well. Larry, do you have any thoughts on this part of the design space that V3 allows? Yeah, I don't have any like specific thoughts. I think, again, like we're gonna, just going to have to wait and see what actually gets traction. I think that's going to be the most interesting thing is that like ultimately you're creating a new asset class, which is going to be these governance tokens building on, on Uniswap V3. And and ultimately, like the market will just play out in a way that the, the ones that pull it off the best and attract the most liquidity um, are going to be the ones that went out. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's, I think it's too early to just to just figure out like what's going to work and what's not. Uh, but but definitely, we're going to be watching it closely. I think it's exciting that we're kind of like growing the pie of the assets that are going to be existing, uh, not just aggregators now, but also market making aggregators to some extent. One of the more interesting metrics that you guys mention in the article uh, that you say we should follow is the trading volume on L2s, right? Once once V3 is deployed on uh, Optimism. Larry, why did Uniswap choose Optimistic Rollup versus another L2 solution? Yeah, I think Optimistic Rollup makes makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, I think that that is the most logical. I, I don't know exactly why they picked it, but it makes sense that they didn't go with the sidechain um, because sidechains just have less security guarantees. And that it also makes sense that they are not going um, for rollups for now because it's just it's just not in production yet. And then you know we'll likely expect uh, ZK rollups, I mean, uh, by the end of the year. So I think optimistic rollups make, make a lot of sense. The question is like, why they pick optimism versus Arbitrum? I don't know. Both of these solutions are, are good and going to be coming online in the next in the next month. So it is going to be interesting. But but I think like Polygon, uh, which which is obviously a sidechain, doesn't have the same security guarantees. It kind of like showed us, a, gave us a good case study uh, about how much liquidity can actually be attracted and how much volume can actually be done. Um, so Polygon attracted a lot of liquidity overall. And, uh, you know, SushiSwap, which deployed there, I believe, like two or three weeks ago, now is having like 100, plus, 100 million plus dollar days in just volume. And, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of shows, you know, same with like Binance Smart Chain. People ultimately, like like the people that just want cheap swaps, ultimately don't care that much about security guarantees as long as they have kind of enough security guarantees, and, but, but much cheaper execution price and much much cheaper just overall price for these swaps. Uh, they're going to go there regardless of, you know, what, what the product is. And I think that that's one thing that is very indicative that when Uniswap deploys on Optimism and when Sushi deploys on Arbitrum, um, I, I'm not going to be surprised if, if a lot of liquidity is sucked in and, and volumes are actually high. The question is like, how long will it take for L2s to take over when it comes to volume over over just the uh, Ethereum base layer? But I, I am expecting it that will happen, and I don't think it'll, it'll take that long. I think it'll be a few months, and, and it will likely happen as long as there's no like catastrophic uh, failure or something with, with the L2s that are, that are going to be deploying. But it is going to be interesting, and I'm really personally interested in like how, how Arbitrum and, and Optimism kind of work out. Mika already mentioned this, but Uniswap is by far the largest uh, DeFi application. Uh, it's by far the most users, by far the most liquidity providers, by far the most mindshare. Uh, also, it's by far the, the highest value token, I believe, at this moment uh, in DeFi. And so obviously, wherever Uniswap goes, uh, it's important. It, that's something to watch. So Optimism has a massive advantage here uh, because, you know, you need composability. Um, and, and so... There's going to be a lot of incentive for other projects to go there as well so that they're um, compatible with with Uniswap on L2. Uh, however, like Arbitrum has some interesting advantages as well. So I, I'm not sure, but I know that that's something that all of us are really excited to watch over the next couple of months and, and see how, how this develops. Larry, you mentioned the Uni token, right? A lot of people are asking, okay, how does Uni see value accrual? Because as of right now, I don't think there is any apart from it being a governance token and you having the ability to vote. Uh, A lot of people in the community, I think, are calling for dividends to be paid to the uni token holders. What about V3 makes it a possibility that, you know, uni token holders will start to see incentivization mechanisms, basically? 
I think uh, it, it's, you know, like the value accrual right now for Unis is, 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 at least in my opinion, kind of like, you know, everyone knows that the fee switch will happen in the future. Um, so you're kind of like already pricing that to be on at some point in the future. And you don't care if it's in two months. Uh, most of the people are just fine with it being at some point in the future, as long as there is a decent chance that it is going to be activated. Um, Uniswap has a, you know, relative, like the governance process is, is relatively difficult right now because it requires a lot of kind of pooled, uh, you know, votes and, and pooled uh, kind of governance together to activate this fee switch. And it's a very contested thing right now because some people argue that it's better to just do it without a fee switch right now and attract a lot of volume, a lot of liquidity and basically just grow as much as you can and then turn it on when it's large because then you, you already kind of have a brand that defends itself. You have a token that's worth a lot of money. A lot of people bought in. Um, so, so, so it might be easier at that point. Like it's almost like comparable to what Amazon did in their early days, where you don't really care that that the holders are not, you know, making money currently. If they're going to be making money in the future, they're fine with making a trade-off. And if they grow a lot uh, because of this and, and attract more LPs, it's probably a trade that's worth making. But I know Mika has a lot of thoughts on this, so you may be better to answer this. Yeah, the only way for Dex token holders to really make money is to rent seek from the liquidity providers the traders pay some fee whatever that fee is uh in uniswap v3 there are three different fee tiers for different kinds of volatility pairs and the only way to make money off of that is to take a cut from what the liquidity providers are making and this isn't good in some sense uh, for the liquidity providers because they want to be paid the maximum amount that they can and the value accrual long-term really comes down to whether or not and how much uh, token holders are basically, from the network effects, the biggest DEX is able to build, how much they're able to rent seek from that uh, to themselves. But it always is this dynamic where they are, will be taking something away from the liquidity providers. And DEXs are a use case where you can always make this argument that uh, always to cut excess fees because that's a it is in some ways a race to the bottom uh, where then that's why it's difficult for DEXs to perhaps compete when they have these fees on because you can always make the argument that okay if we cut those fees more goes to liquidity providers so it's more attractive to be a liquidity provider in a place where those fees don't happen so for DEXs the market dynamic ultimately has to play out where you want to be such a dominant DEX that it's very difficult to compete against you then you have these large network effects around how much liquidity is being provided, how many how many traders there are, and these network effects are one where no one can really break them anymore. And I think that's the situation where you really want to start taking fees. Although it's worth noting that SushiSwap already takes a one-sixth of the liquidity provider fees for the token holders, and they have some vesting mechanisms around that as well, but basically they're already rent-seeking the liquidity providers, and that doesn't seem to bother the liquidity providers too much. So it could be that, okay, you can just turn them on and it's sort of okay as well. And there's no need to get too market efficiency mathematical about how it plays out. And ultimately there are other competitive factors as well on which DEX captures volume. But uh, there is like a give and take between liquidity providers and token holders in some sense in these systems. And then in the ideal sense, you can't take a fee, an extra fee, because you can always take that away. But in practice, you probably will be able to, and that's what the valuation of these tokens ultimately relies on. Yeah, like the unit token already currently is trading at, I believe, like 35 billion in, in fully diluted valuation, and compared to something like Coinbase, you know, which is trading, I think, like fully diluted, probably like 70, 80 million or something, so about two times more. And that's already pretty impressive, considering that, you know, Uniswap is a very kind of lean protocol, very few employees, um, has existed for like two or three years. So the counter argument is like, why turn it on now if, if you can keep like attracting more liquidity, making the market more efficient, because the market doesn't seem to care right now. And that's maybe just because of the bull market. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the, the governance token holders are very reflexive. So if we all of a sudden start seeing like a crash in price or something or a bear market kicks in, uh, I think one of the ways that will probably it will probably start getting more popular to think about doing something like this and, and, and actually become a productive asset and, and have something that kind of like kickstarts the, the opposite direction. But for now, like there just isn't much of a reason to do it where the token is performing well and it definitely has worked well for the token holders so far. 
Yeah, I mean, we covered so much today about what V2 was like, what the migration looked like for the past couple of days since the launch of V3. We talked about the design space within the V3 model that is um, bringing to light a new, basically, AMM structure, right? As we wrap up here, you know, what questions are you guys still exploring about Uniswap V3 um, that perhaps, you know, you haven't yet talked about in any of your research articles? What are some questions that are still floating around in your minds as, as researchers? Overall, the Uniswap V3 launch to me has been very, in some sense, expected. Uh, you knew that you might have these growing troubles attracting liquidity to the long tail of pairs, but there are these tools coming up that should make it better and uh, L2s coming online should help that as well, where, okay, like the Uniswap V3 model will get liquidity around it. The Really, the question comes down to how well does the L2 deployment go? And that is something that almost like an hour to hour basis, once launch happens, you really want to follow because we don't really know just how well, how well optimism is designed, for example, what the friction is to onboard, uh, to, to withdraw assets from optimism. If the user experience is really good or not, we don't really know that. And that's really where all this will be, I think, decided a bit more. If it looks like Uniswap V3 is very good on optimism and the trading volume goes there and and it has it uh, keeps its market share as this clear leader in volume among the ethereum dexes then that's a really good thing if that doesn't really play out positively almost immediately then you start having questions about how much will competitors be able to eat into the market share so i think we are in a situation where everything so far is relatively expected you may have like different expectations on how much liquidity should have migrated already or not but generally we are where we expect it to be but the real big test for Uniswap v3 is coming up and that is just the most interesting part because l2 migration has to happen for ethereum applications at some point at the l1 layer it's just not feasible to run these applications anymore the popularity is too large, the demand is too large, and we know that we have this migration process ahead of us. And we know that also the L2 is a very different environment where, for example, these order book exchanges may become your competitors instead of AMMs, and that changes also the environment entirely. So uh, right, right now it is just going on as it should, but really I think the Uniswap V3 launch and how successful it is and how we evaluate it, it hasn't actually happened yet. It, it is still a few weeks in the future. And just the fact that how quickly it launches is also a question mark. It does matter whether it's, whether it's in two weeks or in three months. Um, and it still is unclear what that range is. And if it is just even a month later, that means that there has been time to bootstrap, for example, on Arbitrum, maybe a DEX or two, and those may start getting a volume. So, the timing matters a lot. The the implementation, how well it is done, optimism on uh, V3 and optimism on V3. So yeah, the, the really big questions are just coming up. They're, they haven't, they're not behind us yet. Yeah, I think I 100% agree with Mika. I think like one thing that we'll be watching closely even before Uniswap deploys is Arbitrum's launch because Arbitrum is kind of front-running optimism. It is rumored and almost certain that SushiSwap will deploy there. So that will be interesting to watch as well, just kind of as a, as a teaser for what happens for optimism uh, with Uniswap. So we're going to be watching it really closely. And another question I have is like, what will happen to liquidity overall? Like right now, when you think of liquidity overall on, on, on Ethereum, it's it's relatively simple, right? Like you're maybe competing with some L1s like, you know, Binance Smart Chain or Solana, but really like a lot of liquidity is basically just bootstrap on Ethereum, but all of a sudden now you're, you know, you have a side chain, you have a massively popular Polygon right now, then you're going to have Arbitrum in, in two weeks, then you're going to have uh, Optimism. And then at some point you're going to have ZK rollups as, as well by the end of the year, hopefully. Um, and it, it's kind of a question of like, where will this liquidity go? And, and is it going to be an issue that this liquidity all of a sudden is fragmented across different L2s and sidechains on Ethereum? Uh, and I think that that's another thing that we're going to be watching really closely. This in theory also should be an advantage for Uniswap V3 because uh, something like SushiSwap, it takes a lot of liquidity to make a good market. And if it takes a lot of liquidity on just one environment, it do, uh, the, if you deploy on two environments, it basically you double your liquidity requirements in some sense. So 
your liquidity fragmentation is a lot heavier process, whereas in theory, Uniswap V3 should work very well with much less liquidity because of these active custom liquidity ranges. And that means that the L2 version of Uniswap requires a lot less liquidity than many of these competitors. And because of that, they may also have an advantage. So seeing exactly that theory, for example, does that play out? And is that really an advantage? That's that's one of the questions that we haven't don't know the answer to. I have one last question for Mika. Do you think that Uniswap will, will have some sort of incentives to migrate onto Optimism? I know they obviously turn it off for the base layer, but do you think they'll turn it on for, for L2? I think Uniswap will do much more aggressive uh, type of uh, situation where they compete for specific uh, pairs that they want. This is maybe what SushiSwap has done well, which is like the weekly uh, weekly menu of, okay, this week we'll concentrate the uh, Sushi incentives on this pair because it has strategic value. Uh, Uniswap V3, I think, has to do that on L2. But that's also one of the things that hasn't started yet is that there's no point in, I think, doing it on L1 right now. Right now, it's just, let's see what the L1 does by itself. But uh, because we care more about the V2 deployment, that's where we should see those. But I'd be sort of very disappointed in Uniswap governance if they're not able to push something like that through because I think there it, it becomes almost necessary. And because the, of the capital efficiency that comes uh, that also liquidity mining sort of benefits from, it should take less uni tokens to make these liquid markets as well. And because of that, uh, those programs should be very good. So I think Uniswap should be ready to do that. Awesome. I, I love the back and forth Q&A that's going on between you guys. So great. I mean, this is a fantastic conversation. This is still very early days for V3, but I'm super glad that, you know, Amber got to be a part of this process of sponsoring you guys and, uh, you know, for unlocking this research piece for, for people to go out and read. So again, it's called An Early Look at Uniswap V3 Activity. Go on the Block website, Put in your email, download it, and you know, give it a read. Follow these guys on on Twitter. I'll put all of the information in the show notes below. Again, thanks guys so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked, and hope to bring you guys on again very very soon. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to be here, and thanks for uh, letting us do this uh, and sponsoring the piece. Thanks a lot. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.